0: The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Turning to Exodus after a bit of a hiatus. And what we're doing is alternating between sections in Exodus and sections in Revelation. And that's intentional. We are feeding our souls that way on different parts of the Bible, feeding our souls on Old Testament and New Testament feeding our souls on different genres, different types of literature in the Bible, both narrative literature and what's called apocalyptic literature. But I want you to make a connection and have a vision of God through both of these, the seeing our God reigning over all for the salvation, the rescue of his people. Today, we pick it up where we left off at the end of chapter four. Sharon's going to pray for us. And read our passage.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we're always grateful for your word. Um, We just sit with anticipation in what you have for us today. In spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're reading this morning from Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 through chapter 5, verses 21. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The word of the Lord. Thank
0: you, Sharon. You can see in this nice graphic, this is our famous bricks without straw passage. But as Sharon read that entire thing, I want you to notice bookends around that scene, to see this passage kind of like a sandwich. Let me show you what I mean. Moses and Aaron, first of all, they had to be feeling good about things. God had met with Moses in the wilderness, revealing himself in the burning bush. The great I Am had heard the cries of people. He would deliver them out of slavery in Egypt, and God verified Moses as his authorized representative God would do signs, miraculous signs, by the hand of Moses, and Moses would speak for God himself through his brother Aaron. So, first book end Moses and Aaron do exactly what God told them to do. They speak everything that God commanded to the people. They do the signs, and the result, chapter 4, verse 31, the people believed. They believed. And when they heard that the Lord, Yahweh, had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So faith and and worship are the result. Everything is going according to plan. Moses and Aaron, they must have had sky-high expectations as they go to confront Pharaoh. Surely God would now act. In the manner and timing they expected. And can't we have similar expectations? When all is going well for us, surely God will act in the manner and timing we expect Him to do so. With our career or our finances, things are unfolding just as I had envisioned. With your schooling, My educational plans are right on schedule with your health, the treatment, the recovery happening perfectly with your marriage or your kids. No challenges, everything just as you imagined, your spiritual life or life in the church, just like you thought it would go. God is acting in the manner and timing I expected him to do so. But what happens when he doesn't? What happens when? God doesn't act in the manner and timing you expect. When the job or career is not going well or doesn't exist. When the finances are inadequate. When the schooling is a letdown. When the health doesn't improve. When the marriage is in heavy turbulence. The kids are struggling. Or your own spiritual vitality. Is lacking. What happens to your view of God then? What happens to your opinion of or perspective on God Himself? This passage is like a case study on that very thing. How our opinions about God, our perspective on God, can change. We saw the first bookend of this passage. We saw the first piece of bread of the sandwich. Let's flip forward to the other bookend. Flip forward to the other piece of bread in the sandwich. Look down to chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. They, the Hebrew foreman of the people, the foreman of the people of Israel, they met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to to kill us. These Israelite foremen have just been beaten by their Egyptian taskmasters. And so they call down a curse On Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge. Do you see the change between these two bookends? Do you see the radical shift of perspective in this sandwich? First, Moses and Aaron are accepted by Israel. They're responded to with faith. And the people worship God. Then at the end, Moses and Aaron are, in effect, rejected by Israel, cursed by these four men of Israel, undoubtedly reflecting popular opinion about Moses and Aaron at that point. Now, Moses and Aaron are God's appointed representatives, God's authorized spokespersons. So this is not just about Moses and Aaron. In effect, in effect, it is a change of perspective on God himself, from faith and worship to your killing us. What brought about that change? In a word, oppression, or we could say opposition difficulty. Chapter 5, verse 1. Let's see the middle of the sandwich. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, now they're confronting Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So they go to Pharaoh and, and maybe they don't do it all perfectly. At the burning bush, God told Moses to take the elders of Israel with him to confront Pharaoh. It appears he only takes Aaron. God told Moses to ask for a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. First, Moses mentions a feast instead. Maybe that's related. And then Moses says that God threatens plagues and slaughter on his own people if they don't sacrifice. We don't know where he got that from. It's not in the text, at least. So maybe Moses doesn't do it all perfectly, but that's really not the point. Because what happens is exactly what God said would happen. Pharaoh resists. Look at verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh is not looking for some information. Please enlighten me about your God. I'd love to know more. No, this is an arrogant response of, I could care less about your so-called God. Now, this is a theme we're going to see as Pharaoh will come to know the true God in a frightful way. But the consequences for the Israelites are harsh, aren't they? Pharaoh mocks them, saying, you're idle. You're lazy. And then he ramps up the oppression. Now, you will gather your own straw to make the bricks. Now, straw for these mud bricks... It's like rebar for cement. It holds the bricks together. The straw is essential for making these mud bricks. And now, now the people have to scavenge the land to try to get their own straw while being required to make the same number of bricks. It's an impossible task. It's irrational. It's a tyrant on display. Phil Riken compares their situation to a chapter in Tolkien's The Hobbit. The chapter title is Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire. You may know the story. Bilbo Baggins, the dwarves, and Gandalf have been traveling through the tunnels of the Misty Mountains. They are beset by goblins. After a brief battle, they escape from the goblins, but they are then surrounded by a pack of hungry wolves. And so Bilbo and his companions scramble up some trees to get away from the wolves, but now they're trapped. And the goblins come, and they start stacking combustible materials around each of those trees. And then they set the trees on fire where Bilbo and his friends are taking refuge. And Tolkien writes, quote, "'Smoke was in Bilbo's eyes.' he could feel the heat of the flames. Through the reek, he could see the goblins dancing round and around in a circle like people round a midsummer bonfire. They escape one peril to find themselves in a worse situation. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. That's how the people of Israel must have felt. Things have gone from bad to worse. It can be that way for us, can it? And just teenagers or young people, think about this come to Christ, and things may get harder in the here and now. Still, come to Christ, but things may get more challenging. The point here is really not so much about the straw and the bricks. If you gather, if you take in the bookends, it's really about oppression, changing opinions, ultimately, about God. If you see these bookends, this sandwich, it's really about opposition and difficulty, altering, ultimately, our view of God himself. Now, our challenges are not the same as their oppression, I grant you that, but doesn't something similar happen for us when the job or career is not going well, when the finances are inadequate, the school is a letdown, the health doesn't improve, the marriage is a challenge, the kids are not doing well. Those are hard situations. But if we're not careful, oppression, opposition, difficulty will change our view of God. And it's not just external challenges that do that. It's not just challenges from without. Challenges from within can change our view as well. Internal struggles like legalism and self-condemnation. You start to think of God as being like Pharaoh here, laying on you impossible demands You think that God wants you to make your own bricks without straw somehow. You think he's demanding that you always measure up and is constantly displeased with you. You think of Christianity as some kind of taskmaster religion. Friends, with challenges from without or challenges from within, either way, we put God on what's called the proverbial Procrustian bed. Procrustus was a Greek mythological figure, an innkeeper who forced tall or short guests to exactly fit the bed they were sleeping in. So if you were short, he would stretch you out to exactly fit the bed. If you were too tall, he would amputate a body part you exactly fit the bed? So a Procrustean bed is this figure of speech when we are altering facts to fit some preconceived notion, lopping off something, stretching something out to fit our idea of what things should be like. And we can do that with God. Challenges from without, challenges from within and we start lopping off aspects of his character. Here's my situation, and so I'm going to lop off something. He, he, he must not be very powerful. He must not be so wise. He must not be good or loving. He must be kind of unwise or less than good or not very caring toward me. So we stretch him out or we shrink him do you see how our, our own opinions can change about God? Our own view can be affected. So what's the lesson for us? What's God teaching us here? Well, I think Alec Matir captures it nicely. He says, quote, "The principle which this passage enunciates is that there is no such thing as an untested." The principle, he says, this passage enunciates, is that there is no such thing as an untested faith. I mean, the people respond with faith. First bookend. Oppression hits. Middle. Second bookend. Opinions are altered. There is no such thing as an untested faith. Read the book of Job. God tests our faith to form and strengthen our faith. So when our faith is tested like that, what should we do? What wisdom do we glean from this passage? If this passage is showing us how opinions can change, if this passage is showing us how there is no such thing as an untested faith, what do we glean here that would help us? Well, two issues. See, as we venture forth this summer in this Passover narrative, it's helpful to realize that it is really set up as a battle between two sovereigns, a battle between two kings or gods, you might say. You see, Pharaoh is a god in the Egyptian worldview. Certainly, he thinks of himself that way, and that's how the Egyptians thought as well. Pharaoh is a god. And... We're going to see Yahweh, Israel's God, the true God. So really, a battle of deities is playing out. A heavyweight match, as it were, but it's not an even match. There's a would-be God versus the true God. And the battle lines here in this passage are are two, two. Two questions that emerge. The first is, whose word is true? Or whose word will we believe? you might say, whose word is true. Notice what Pharaoh says in verse 9. He says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Let's make them work harder because they're listening to lying words. Now that verse is kind of at the center of the narrative. It's like a pivot point for the whole thing. Pharaoh is calling God's promises of deliverance through Moses and Aaron lying words. He's indicting God's character. He's ultimately calling God a liar, isn't he? When our own faith is tested, do we agree with that? Do we say or think? God's words must be Lying words. Are we putting him on that Procrustian bed and lopping off his truthfulness? Lopping off his integrity? Isn't that, isn't that right out of Satan's playbook? From the garden? That we would distrust God's word and God's character. Pharaoh says, God's words are, are lying words. And for the people, for the people, it seems they may have a case of selective hearing about God's words. I have been accused at times as a parent of having selective hearing. Why don't you hear what he says to me? Or why don't you hear what she says to me? And I, I, I'm focused on something else, but I admit to you, sometimes I may have a little bit of selective hearing, Sometimes you tune things out. This may be a case of some selective hearing. In that first bookend, it says, Aaron spoke all the words, all the words that God said to Moses. So the people heard the good news of deliverance. It just seems like they didn't process all the news that it's going to be hard at times. God said in Exodus 3, Pharaoh will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God said in Exodus 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will not let the people go. So God has already said, this ain't going to be pretty. Give me some speed bumps in the way. It would seem they believed good news of deliverance. They didn't process all the news. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Friends, we need to believe all of God's word. Think about Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, good news. But hear all the news. Through many tribulations not going to be easy all the time. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So eternal weight of glory, good news. But hear all the news. It's through these afflictions preparing us for that. When our faith is tested... Beware of Pharaoh's perspective. God's words are lying words. But beware also of selectively hearing God's word. We need the word of God shaping our opinions of God. That's one battle line here. There's There's a second one as well. A second question for when our faith is tested who will hear our cries? Who will hear our cries? In this battle of sovereigns, Pharaoh versus the living God, that's also an issue. Who is truly hearing the cries of the people? Look at chapter 5, verse 15. Chapter 5, verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to, Mo- uh, to Pharaoh, sorry, cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? Now, it makes total sense. Pharaoh gave the order for the bricks without straw. So cry out to Pharaoh. That's completely natural. But what's what's lacking in the passage? What's what's conspicuously absent in the passage? Well, crying out to God like they were before. In chapter 2. Exodus 2, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant, his promises with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, same word for cried in both passages. Seems like, seems like an intentional contrast. Chapter two, Israel's crying out to God. God hears, God cares. God responds with his promises. Chapter five, Israel through these foremen, Jewish Israelite foremen, cry out to Pharaoh only who could care less about them. Seems like an intentional contrast in this battle of sovereigns. Say, who's really hearing our cries? Friends, in your challenges within or challenges without, do you cry out to God? I, I admit, in my own self sufficiency, I just want to power through my own strengths. It's a challenge for me. Do you cry out to God with your trials, your difficulties, your fears, your worries, your anxieties, your grief, what's weighing on your heart right now? I want to recommend... A book to you. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament by Mark Vrogop. It's about the biblical category of lament, how God wants us to cry out to him, how he wants you to be real and honest with him to tell him, this is how I'm hurting right now. This is how I'm in pain right now. To take that to the Lord, to cry out to him and through your cries to come to a place of trust. Vrogop writes, quote, lament is a prayer that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer, a cry to God. That leads to trust because, friends, he hears your cries. He hears you when the job or career are not going well. He hears you when the finances are inadequate. He hears you when the schooling is a letdown. He hears you when the health is not improving. He hears you when the marriage is in turbulence. He hears you when the kids are struggling. He hears you when your own spiritual vitality is a challenge. For those times and all the others that are hard for you, God says, cry out to me. He cares for you. You know, Exodus 5 was written quite a bit after these events took place. The original inspired author is writing these to a later generation. People have been delivered out of slavery. This was first written down for a later generation. People who had already been delivered were about to enter the promised land. That later generation is the original intended audience. Moses, the inspired original author is writing this down first for them. Why? Well, so that when their faith is tested, they would know that God's word is true and he hears their cries. They would look back on this scene and realize when our faith is tested, God's word is true, and He welcomes our cries and hears them. And the same is true for you right now. If you are in Christ, when your faith is tested, when opinions about God begin to shift, When you're putting him on that Procrustean bed and tempted to lop off something of his character, he must not be loving or he must not be good or he must not care about me. When your faith is tested, God's word is true. And he hears your cries. He's saying, even this morning, cry out to me. Bring me what's heavy on your heart. Lament your difficulties as a prayer that brings you to trust. You know, friends, Pharaoh's oppression was nothing like our own enslavement to sin and Satan. But Christ came not as a taskmaster. Christ came not calling you to some impossible task. Christ came not to say, you better start making bricks with your own straw. Christ came to set you free. He came saying, come to me. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, weighed down, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. And then he died to redeem all who believe. He paid the ransom price for your sins, rose from the dead to set you free. Friends, God has given us a far better Exodus story. He has set you free and brought you to himself to be his own beloved child. So you can be confident this morning that when your faith is tested, his word to you is true. His word is true. He's not lying. And he hears your cries. He says, bring them to me. I will meet you. I thought it'd be good for us to close by praying a lament together before we take the Lord's Supper. So I'd like us to pray and cry out to God through the words of a lament, Psalm 130. I want to ask you to pray this out loud with me, and then we're going to pause, and I just want to ask you to silently cry out to God, because there's stuff on each of our hearts. Hardship, challenges, difficulties. It's what you've been thinking about in this sermon. So let's allow Psalm 130 to lead us to the God whose word is true and invites our cries to him. Let's pray this together, please. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Take a moment to bring to God whatever's troubling you right now. Bring to him that hardship, that uncertainty, that fear. Because he hears you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that when our faith is tested, when our opinions begin to shift, we can know that your word is true, your promise is real, and you welcome our cries in Christ. We thank you in Jesus'
1: name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.